Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. Today, we discuss Jeremy's cousin, David Robert Bowflower, and how his actions played a key part in Jeremy's wrongful conviction. David Bowflower was born in 1947 and is the son of June's sister Pamela and her husband Robert Bowflower and the brother of Anne Eaton. In 1974, he met his future wife Karen and they went on to marry and have three children. David farmed two areas of land at the time of the tragedies at White House Farm, the land associated with his home at Burnt Ash Farm in Wicks, and the land farmed by his father at Carbonell's Farm. In a statement to the police in September 1985, David stated that at 9am on the morning of the 7th of August 1985, he was at his parents' home when he answered a telephone call from his sister Anne Eaton. Anne said she'd heard that police marksmen and dogs were at the farm, but knew no more. David said he tried to telephone the farm, and on being unable to get through, phoned the police. At approximately 11am, David went to the farm, and a police officer told him the relatives were meeting at Jeremy's cottage, and he learned the extent of the tragedies that had occurred. David arrived at Jeremy's cottage soon after, and remained for the majority of the day. The following day, the relatives discovered that they would not inherit anything significant from the Bamber estates. David was in line to inherit £100 from his godmother June Bamber, whilst his sister Anne was bequeathed just £250 from her godfather Neville, and that was the totality of the inheritance any of the Bowflowers or Eatons were left. The realisation that the adopted son of the Bambers, Jeremy, stood to inherit the vast majority of the remaining assets was the trigger for the relatives, in particular Anne and her father Robert, to discuss implicating Jeremy for the shootings. It was decided between the siblings and their cousin Anthony Pargeter and with Robert Bowflower that they would visit the police station in an attempt to persuade them that Jeremy had committed the murders and not Sheila. A meeting was subsequently arranged and on Friday the 9th of August when the three cousins marched into Witham Police Station to be seen by DCI Taff Jones, DS Stanley Jones and DI Robert Miller. It appears that David was not as noticeably demanding of the police at this meeting and at one stage agreed that Sheila could quite easily have committed the murders. Anne admitted as much in a statement during 1991 when she informed the City of London Police, I do remember the police saying, now, do you believe Sheila could have done it? I remember David or Anthony or both saying or agreeing, perhaps she could. So, David was not as vocal in his allegations against Jeremy, but his role in obtaining the conviction of his cousin was crucial to the financial security of the Bowflowers and Eatons. On the 10th of August, at approximately 11am, David visited White House Farm in order, he said, to help Anne clean up and look for clues. He gave evidence that during the afternoon, everyone in the house including his sister and the accountant Basil Cock, went into Neville's downstairs office, where David searched the so-called gun cupboard. This cupboard was nothing more than an understairs space in which various items, including guns, gun-related equipment, a paint sprayer and a dartboard were stored. The door of the cupboard had no lock on it and had a simple catch to keep it closed, a fact David stated at the trial. The one-inch thick veneer plywood door is about three foot eight tall and has no lock, being kept shut by a nylon ball catch. By calling this under-the-stairs storage space a gun cupboard, it allowed Essex police to infer that this was a secure and specific cupboard where Neville kept all the weapons which were in the house. This was not true. The evidence from several witnesses, including Anne, demonstrates that guns were found all over the house on the 10th of August, which we will set out shortly. Additionally. Jeremy always maintained 
that during the evening of the 6th of August, while on a break from work on the farm, he noticed some rabbits in the farm and so had taken the 22 Anschutz rifle loaded with a full magazine of 10 rounds of ammunition to shoot them. The rabbits had gone by the time he went back outside and he didn't fire the gun. Then he went back into the house, removed the magazine from the gun, took out a bullet from the breech and put the rifle on the settle in a hallway near to the back door. However, Essex police attempted to imply that Jeremy was lying and that his father Neville was meticulous with gun safety and would never have let Jeremy leave a weapon out. In statements taken from relatives and in their trial evidence, this issue was raised. Peter Eaton told Essex Police, I can't recall any occasion when I have been down to White House Farm and seen a gun lying about either loaded or unloaded. They always used to be in the lobby, but this last year he has kept them in the cupboard under the stairs. Robert Bowflower gave evidence that, when at White House Farm, I never saw any guns lying about except immediately after a shoot. And David Bowflower told the jury that Neville always put guns away after they had been used. In his statement, written four days after Jeremy's first arrest and release without charge, David Bowflower said, I am aware that Uncle Neville took his dog, the Black Labrador, and Auntie June's dog, the smaller Shih Tzu, for a walk round to the front of the house about 10pm, 10.30pm, every night, always leaving via the kitchen door. I find it inconceivable that in passing through the kitchen and hallway near the back door, Uncle Neville would have left a gun and ammunition lying around. Without doubt, he would have put them away in the gun cupboard if he had seen them. These and similar assertions regarding Neville and gun safety can now be shown to be provable lies, because the guns David removed from White House Farm on the 10th of August were scattered throughout various rooms. Anne Eaton wrote down the location of some of the guns on her note cards in which she said, 1. Uncle N. Neville. 12 bore in Lesser's gun case. 2. 410. Back stairs. Loose. No case. 3. Air gun. Back stairs. Loose. No case. 4. Anthony gun. Lou. David also gave evidence in a witness statement that he had taken a Webley and Scott 12-bore shotgun, a BSA Meteor 22 air gun, a Webley and Scott single bolt-action 410 shotgun, a greener double-barrel ejected 12-bore shotgun, an older hammer double-barrel 12-bore shotgun, and continued to say, I'm aware that these guns were owned by Anthony Pargeter and that he always kept them at White House Farm for his use when he went shooting there. I found these in the toilet shower room. Why Essex police made the decision to only remove the Anschutz rifle found on Sheila's body and to leave a substantial number of weapons in the house is unknown. However, Essex police can now be shown to have been aware that guns were lying unsecured all over the house and yet the jury were deliberately misled as they were given the information that all the guns were locked away in a gun cupboard and that Neville was meticulous with gun safety. This fabricated evidence was used against Jeremy at his trial as the prosecution created the scenario that if Jeremy had left the gun out on the kitchen table, as they argued, then Neville would have put it away in the gun cupboard. They argued that Neville would never have left a gun out, particularly as two small and inquisitive children, Nicholas and Daniel, were staying at the farm. The facts were intentionally skewed by the police as Jeremy did not leave a gun on the kitchen table, but as he stated, unloaded, on a settle in a room adjacent to the kitchen, and as we set out earlier, guns were to be found all over the property. This 
was a deliberate attempt by the prosecution to connect Jeremy to the gun cupboard where a sound moderator had been found by David. In total, five of the guns David removed from the house were not in the so-called gun cupboard but were in various locations throughout the house. In fact, only two guns were in the cupboard, a shotgun owned by Neville that Peter Eaton had put in when he looked around the house with his wife Anne, DCI Jones and DS Jones on the evening of the 9th of August, and Anthony Pargeter's twenty-two rifle, which was in its gun case just inside the door. All of these weapons were taken to the home of Anne and Peter on the evening of the 10th of August. During his visit to White House Farm on the 10th of August, David was inquisitive and had a look deeper into the understairs cupboard and removed the contents from two dusty cardboard boxes in the back of the cupboard, which also had a paint sprayer in a box on top of it. It was within one of these that he found a sound moderator, some telescopic sights and various boxes of ammunition. It seems particularly odd that, by his own admission, the box he found the sound moderator in was dusty. And yet this is the same box which Jeremy is supposed to have opened up to put the moderator inside after shooting all of his family. And yet, by some miracle, he did not disturb any of the dust or leave any traces of blood on it. Although he wore no gloves, David firstly examined his findings in the kitchen of the farm, before inspecting them more closely sitting around the kitchen table at his sister Anne's house that evening with both Anne and her husband Peter. At trial, David admitted that he conducted quite a detailed examination of the sound moderator and stated that my fingerprints would be all over it. However, even though a sound moderator was subject to testing for fingerprints at Sandridge Laboratory twice, no fingerprints matching those of David Bowflower were discovered. Had he wiped it clean after his examination, and in doing so, rendered it forensically useless. But, as the evidence lodged with the Criminal Cases Review Commission now proves, the sound moderator issue is a red herring, as there was no sound moderator attached to the rifle during the incident. In his trial evidence, David was asked the following. Question. Now, it follows from what you have said that you did not immediately run the silence around to the nearest police station. You took it to your sister's home. Answer. Yes, and rang the police immediately to the effect that we had a silencer. There was some confusion over who advised the police about this item. David stated Anne contacted the police and she said it was David. But whoever contacted them, it was not collected from Anne's home by DS Jones until the 12th of August, two days later. It is self-evident that the sound moderator should never have been relied upon as the key forensic exhibit by the prosecution, as its integrity and that of any contaminants was not preserved. And even though David admitted he had conducted his own examination of this vital exhibit, it was still accepted at the laboratory. And not only that, it was used as the fundamental basis of the conviction against Jeremy. How do we know that David interfered with this exhibit? And what did he actually do to it to compromise any evidence it held? The answers are in the evidence he gave, although, astoundingly, this evidence was expressed to the jury in such a matter-of-fact manner that they failed to appreciate what they were actually hearing or the importance of it. So what is the evidence that this exhibit was tampered with prior to being submitted to the laboratory? In the first instance, we have already set out that David handled the sound moderator in a careless manner at the farmhouse, so much so that he admitted his fingerprints would have been all over it. In his trial evidence, Anne's husband Peter was cautious in what he said at trial regarding the examination of the sound moderator, 
and informed the jury that he didn't actually handle it. In addition, he added that David hardly touched it, and that he was careful when he did, only touching it to remove it from the carrier bag it was in, rolling down the sides to avoid handling it, and when he was asked how the sound moderator was physically examined, Peter said, David took the sides out, and then the silencer, and placed them on the table, slightly away from the plastic bag. I do not remember how he piled the items up. However, I can remember Anne telling us to be careful because of fingerprints. I remember now that in order to get to the things inside the plastic bag, David rolled the sides down. However, this was not the truth, as David confessed at the trial that he had handled the sound moderator in an aggressive manner during this examination at Oak Farm. He admitted that he had forcibly made attempts to unscrew the knurled end nut and had used some degree of force when doing this. In 1991, David gave a more detailed version of this examination and advised the COLP officers, I was holding it in my left hand and gripping the knurled ring tightly with my right hand trying to unscrew it. David continued that he had been unsuccessful and could not get it undone. Hardly a careful examination and certainly not looking at the sound moderator by walking around the kitchen table. The evidence now reveals so many factors which prove that the sound moderator was not forensically sound and should never have been considered in evidence, let alone be a singular factor the judge told the jury they could convict on. The sound moderator discovered by David had been subjected to a number of examinations. Evidence contained in witness statements reveals that this sound moderator had been removed from a dusty box and no gloves were worn, and it was examined at the scene by an unspecified number of individuals prior to being put into a carrier bag with other items removed from the cupboard. This sound moderator was examined again at the kitchen table in Anne's home by an unspecified number of individuals, when at least one attempt was made to unscrew it to remove the baffles. Again, no gloves were worn during this examination. On conclusion of the examination, the sound moderator was put back into the carrier bag and stored in an unknown location before being handed to a gloveless DS Jones two days later. The sound moderator was then placed in a cardboard kitchen roll tube before being thrown into the boot of Jones's car, where it remained until it was taken to Witham Police Station where it was examined again by Jones, Miller and Cook before finally being submitted to the laboratory on the 13th of August. How can this possibly be deemed to have been forensically safe? How could any of the contamination of this item be permitted to be relied upon in a court? How could the judge not throw this exhibit out as being compromised? And how was Jeremy ever convicted on the evidence of this item? As in the judge's summing up, he informed the jury that the sound moderator is clearly of very great importance and the evidence relating to the sound moderator could, on its own, lead you to the conclusion that the defendant is guilty. Of course, we now know that this was not the only silencer or sound moderator seized as the evidence shows the first was discovered and seized by Essex police officers on the day of the tragedies. Both were forensically examined and both were contaminated in different ways. It was only by combining the results from both sound moderators and then allocating a brand new reference number to obscure the fact the evidence came from two separate moderators that allowed Essex Police to use this evidence, presented as having come from just one device, to connect it to the incident and ultimately to implicate Jeremy. 
It is also extremely odd that not a single one of the relatives mentioned the sound moderator they found in any witness statement until after Jeremy was arrested the first time on the 8th of September 1985. Why not? Was this simply because forensic examinations prior to Jeremy's release without charge had failed to connect the sound moderator David found with either the scene or Jeremy? Was it now necessary for the relatives to not only raise the issue of a sound moderator, but to give evidence that it had blood and paint on it when it was discovered to connect it to the scene, and by inference, implicate Jeremy? Why did DS Jones not take a statement from everyone involved in this sound moderator's discovery? Why were statements not taken when it was collected from Anne's home? Whatever the reason, it is very strange that this exhibit only became relevant after Jeremy was released without charge. The evidence now proves that the first time David said anything to the police about a sound moderator was in two documented telephone calls made on the 11th of September to Inspector Maureen Scollin. The first was made at 10.28pm, in which it is recorded he said he had found a silencer with blood on it in a cardboard box in the office with some telescopic sights that were double-packed in polythene. Oddly, this message then states, relevant point being it was not. There is no explanation for what this means. What was not? Was the silencer not found here? Were the sights not double-packed in polythene? Were these two items not actually found together? Then, just four minutes later, at 10.32pm, David made a second call and it was recorded on Essex Police Message Report that he said, I should be making a statement shortly, but no one has been here, and there is some info I want to give to do with the forensics and the rifle. I am the nephew, and I used to live there. I discovered the silencer which has gone for forensics, and I spotted the blood on the end. This is odd in two respects. Firstly, according to statements made after Jeremy's release without charge on the 13th of September, the relatives began to give evidence that they saw blood and paint on this sound moderator. Yet David failed to mention that he saw paint during the two phone calls to the police on the 11th of September. In addition, he states that he had not yet been requested to make a statement. But he had made a statement prior to this date, which he referenced in handwritten notes he made in preparation for his statement to the City of London Police in 1991. In these notes, David wrote, Thought made statements in August, but appear mistaken. However, by the time this was typed up into his statement, the content was altered, and it now read, Thought I may have made further statements, but I may be mistaken. Therefore, it appears that David's evidence was deliberately changed in order to obscure the fact that he had made a statement in August, a statement which remains undisclosed to this day. Why did Essex Police not disclose this statement written in August? What evidence did it contain? We can only assume that the content of this document must have been of benefit to the defence. The beneficiaries were emphatic that Robert Bowflower was not present during the examination of the sound moderator. However, oddly he was able to describe, in detail, to the police the actions of his son in attempting to undo the silencer when he told them. I didn't even look closely as David later produced the telescopic sights, and that was put with the sound moderator and was taken to Oak Farm that evening. 
When there, David's curiosity got the better of him, and he tried to take the end off to examine inside, but immediately spotted a drop of what looked like blood, the size of a match head, near the exit hole. Now this seems a very detailed account if he was not there to observe what was happening. We now know that a tiny flake of blood discovered on the 12th of September by Home Office biologist John Hayward was, just prior to trial, not only an exact match for the blood enzyme groups of Sheila Caffell, but was also an exact match for Robert Bowflower. Information which was never disclosed to the jury. Did Robert accidentally cut himself and did his blood enter the sound moderator? Is this why such strong assertions were made by other relatives that he was not present when the sound moderator was being examined? At trial, David was asked about another exhibit which should never have been included as evidence. This was a grey hair which DS Jones apparently saw attached to a burr on the sound moderator when he collected it from Anne's home on the 12th of August and which went missing prior to arriving at the laboratory, so was never forensically examined. At trial, attempts were made to connect this hair with the assault on Neville Bamber and assertions made that it could have come from his head. Although this issue is discussed in detail in episode 6 of our podcasts, it is important that we include the evidence David said about this here. The additional important factor is that David appears to have been let into the courtroom prior to giving his own evidence. This is evident in the responses he made when supplying answers to questions about the grey hair. He was asked about the examinations he made of the sound moderator and specifically if he saw this hair. He responded that, I have already heard the evidence that there was a hair on the silencer and I cannot comment on that because I do not recall the hair. Surely, examining the sound moderator as he had admitted to, trying to unscrew the end of it, it is inconceivable that had there been a hair present, he would not have seen it. But then he continued to state, Question. Whilst you were examining it, did anyone make reference to a hair that you can recall? Answer. Not at the time. I have heard reference to this hair through the court and in television news media, but I'm afraid I cannot elaborate any further than that. Why was David allowed to sit in the courtroom and listen to the evidence of other witnesses prior to giving his own evidence? Was he given permission? If so, who gave this permission? Or did he simply take this decision himself and walk into court to listen to the evidence of others to assist him when he was called. Whatever the reason, and whoever was behind this, it should never have been allowed. Nine witnesses had given their testimony before David was called. This included members of Essex Police and scenes of crime officers. Hearing the evidence from these witnesses therefore could have influenced what David told the jury. Another issue which was of importance at trial was the relative's knowledge of Sheila and in particular her capability of using and loading a gun. David admitted in his statement dated the 17th of September 1985 that he only saw Sheila, at the most, only two or three times per year, and that, To my knowledge, I know nothing of any drug problem she might have had, although I learned from within the family that for the past two years she had been receiving treatment from a psychiatric problem which I took to be depression. I last met Sheila about Christmas 1983 and have seen no first-hand experience of those problems. In a later statement, David Bowflower said that he did not believe Sheila could have been responsible and 
For anyone to successfully kill five people with a single shot each, especially using low-velocity ammunition, again, I heard this at an early stage from a police officer, is remarkably accurate shooting. For someone like Sheila, who I have described as scatty, is almost unbelievable, a virtual impossibility. Even when we heard later, mistakenly, that it was 12 shots, it was still exceptionally good shooting, but practically impossible for someone of Sheila's personality to achieve. But the shots were not accurate, as the police later recorded that 25 shots had been fired during the incident, and therefore the question of accuracy was irrelevant. It is now known that even more shots were fired than have ever been disclosed by Essex Police, which we will discuss in a future episode. In addition, David admitted that he had no knowledge of Sheila suffering from schizophrenia. He believed that she had depression and had not seen her for almost two years at the time of the tragedies. In his evidence to Essex Police, in a statement written in September 1985, David set out that, I am unaware of Sheila having any experience of guns, and as far as I am aware, she has no expertise in the use of or knowledge of guns. This was a factor which he emphasised further during the trial, when he told the jury that he had no personal recollection of ever seeing Sheila holding a gun, except in a photograph he had seen in a newspaper. Mr Arledge, for the prosecution, asked him a second time. Question. Apart from that, had you ever seen her with a gun? Answer. No. Not that I can recall. When cross-examined by Mr Rivlin, he was specifically asked if he recalled a shooting holiday he had been on with Sheila. David denied this and said he had no recollection at all about this, but could remember he had been on one with Jeremy, Neville and Karen, David's wife. Mr Rivlin asked again, Are you saying you have never been to Scotland with Sheila and or others on a shooting holiday? Answer. I cannot recollect Sheila being on the shooting holiday you are referring to. Question. Did you not go on a shooting holiday with Sheila and Jeremy Bamber being present? Answer. My mind is somewhat blurred at this time. There may have been an occasion when Neville Bamber and Jeremy, but this must have been many years before that. Just one question later. David now admitted he could, in fact, remember this shooting holiday with Sheila in Scotland. And he further revealed that not only did she go on this holiday, but he had knowledge that Sheila had not only held a gun, but had fired one. David explained this to the jury. Question. It may have been some years before. I cannot give you a date. Do you understand? But doing the best I can, may I suggest to you 1978-79 period, when you went on a shooting holiday with Sheila? You understand, I'm not concerned to ask you about just any old holiday that you may have been on, however pleasant, but to ask you about a time when you took Sheila up with you, and there was such an occasion, was there not, Mr Bowflower? Answer. I have a feeling, now that you have brought back the grey matter a little, Sheila may have come with me on one occasion. Question. Can you tell the court, did she do any shooting? Answer. It's such a long time ago, I, I cannot recollect. But she certainly did not carry a gun. She may have fired a gun off, in the party, perhaps. So it appears that once David's grey matter began to shine through, the truth began to emerge. 
However, Mr Rivlin failed to seize this opportunity and question David any further about this important evidence, and the issue of Sheila's capability to use a weapon was simply left hanging. During his evidence at trial, David admitted that a practical demonstration had taken place between himself and Essex police involving a similar 22 rifle and sound moderator that had been found at the scene. He revealed, Yes, and I have two rifles, both with silencers, pretty well identical. Uh, one is two inches longer than that. Question. Parker and Hale? Answer. Both Parker and Hale. In fact, I tried to demonstrate to the police officers the significance in using a silencer and the difference in the sound moderation it creates. And we did actually do a practical demonstration. It is not known which police officers were involved in this practical demonstration, when this was conducted, where this was carried out, or what the purpose of this demonstration was conducted for. It appears that Essex Police and David Bowflower kept this demonstration a secret as no documentation has ever been disclosed about this. We have, however, uncovered some fresh evidence which relates to hidden experiments conducted by the relatives and Essex Police which has been submitted to the Criminal Cases Review Commission and which we will reveal in the near future once the CCRC have concluded their considerations of the issues which have been lodged with them. Now, since the trial, David often spoke out to journalists and the media. One such occasion was in July 2013, when Jeremy won a ruling in the European courts regarding the whole life tariff issue, and that there needed to be an element of hope for such prisoners that they could be released, which again we will discuss in a later episode. During this filmed interview for BBC News, David spoke about his Aunt June and discussed a note which was in her Bible. He stated, My Aunt June, who died very sadly, uh, she had a piece of paper in her Bible, and in it said, When strong men fail to stand up for what is right, then evil will prevail. So I'm just trying to stand up here to say what I think is right. However, Essex police told Jeremy that June's Bible, which was seized as an exhibit, had been destroyed and that a note which can be seen within its pages on the crime scene photographs was not retained. Documents, however, have revealed that a Bible was returned to the family. Could it have been the one which contained the note? It is only in recent years that a copy of the note, which can be seen protruding from the Bible photograph next to the body of Sheila, was discovered, and this note in no way resembles what David told the BBC it contained. One of David Bowflower's comments to the media as he was filmed leaving the court following Jeremy's conviction has been widely used in documentary programmes and publications. He said, No one wins. We all lose. He and the rest of the wider family certainly didn't lose financially. Now, 36 years after the events at White House Farm, we believe that the truth is soon to be exposed with a successful referral to the Court of Appeal and ultimately justice for Jeremy Bamber. It will be at that stage that Jeremy will then be able to claim his rightful inheritance from the very people who were party to ensuring that he not only lost his rightful inheritance, but also his freedom. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC, HM Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF29AG, or see our website for details at www. 
jeremy-bamba.co.uk.